European Heart Journal, Issue at a Glance. Volume 42, Issue 40. Focus Issue, Epidemiology and Prevention. By Editor-in-Chief, Professor Filippo Crea. Read to you by Morgan Bryan. Stop smoking and sleep well to reduce cardiovascular risk. This focus issue on epidemiology and prevention contains the ESC Fast Track Manuscript, Efficacy of a Digital Therapeutic System in the Management of Essential Hypertension, the HERB DH1 Pivotal Trial, by Kazumi Kario and colleagues from the Jichi Medical University School of Medicine in Japan. We are witnessing exponential interest in digital health. Digital therapeutics refers to an emerging branch of medicine which utilizes technology-based software algorithms or applications to facilitate disease management. Although there are a plethora of apps claiming to help manage hypertension, few have been developed in collaboration with healthcare professionals or device companies, and none have undergone rigorous scientific assessment of clinical efficacy in patients with hypertension. Furthermore, the data that are available are not consistent with respect to the effects of digital therapeutics on BP levels and control. Based on promising findings from a small pivotal trial, the HERB Digital Hypertension 1 or HERB DH1 Pivotal Trial, the authors investigated the efficacy of digital therapeutics in patients with hypertension not receiving antihypertensive medication. This prospective open-label randomized control study was performed at 12 sites in Japan. Patients with hypertension, office systolic blood pressure or SBP, 140 to less than 180 milligrams of mercury and 24-hour SBP greater than or equal to 130 milligrams of mercury were randomly assigned one-to-one -to, -one to the digital therapeutics group, herb system plus standard lifestyle modification or control group standard lifestyle modification alone. The primary efficacy endpoint was the mean change in 24-hour ambulatory SBP from baseline to 12 weeks. Key secondary efficacy endpoints were mean changes in office and home blood pressure, or BP, from baseline to 12 weeks. Between December 2019 and June 2020, 390 patients were randomly assigned to the digital therapeutics group. N equaling 199, or the control N equaling 191 group. Between group differences in 24-hour ambulatory, home and office SBPs at 12 weeks were minus 2.4, minus 4.3 and minus 3.6 milligrams of mercury, respectively, and all significant. No major program-related safety events occurred up to 24 weeks. The authors conclude that the HERB DH1 pivotal study shows the superiority of digital therapeutics compared with standard lifestyle modifications alone to reduce 24-hour ambulatory home and office BPs in the absence of antihypertensive medications. The article is accompanied by an editorial by Luis Ruy Lope from the Hospital 12 de Octobre in Madrid, Spain. The author notes that more effort is needed to efficiently implement healthy lifestyle changes for the prevention and management of arterial hypertension. Initiatives such as therapeutics may pave the way for a new era in which the technology of the new millennium can be used 
paradoxically to help us to return to a more traditional, non-westernised way of living. Direct oral anticoagulants, or DOACs, have revolutionised the treatment of non-valvular atrial fibrillation, or NVAF. Assistance DOACs have become a concern in NVAF patients, but whether this affects prognosis is rarely studied. In a clinical research article entitled Predictors, Time Course and Outcomes of Persistence Patterns in Oral Anticoagulation for Non-Valvular Atrial Fibrillation, a Dutch nationwide cohort study, Myrta Turup and colleagues from the Leiden University Medical Center in the Netherlands investigated the persistence with oral anticoagulants, or OACs, and its association with prognosis among a nationwide cohort of NVAF patients. DOAC-naive NVAF patients who started to use DOACs for ischemic stroke prevention between 2013 and 2018 were included using Dutch national statistics. Assistance with OACs was determined based on the presence of a 100-day gap between the last prescription and the end of study period. The cumulative incidence of persistence with OACs was 88%, 83%, 78% and 72% at 1, 2, 3 and 4 years after receiving DOACs respectively. Baseline characteristics associated with better persistence with OACs included female sex, age range 65 to 74 years, permanent AF, previous exposure to vitamin K antagonists, stroke history, including transient ischemic attack, and CHADS-2 VASC score greater than or equal to 2. Non-persistence with OACs was associated with a significantly increased risk of the composite outcome of ischemic stroke and ischemic stroke-related death, adjusted hazard ratio, or AHR, 1.79, and ischemic stroke, AHR, 1.58, 95% confidence interval, 1.29 to 1.93, compared with being persistent with OACs. The authors conclude that at least a quarter of NVAF patients were non-persistent with OACs within four years, which was associated with poor efficacy of ischemic stroke prevention. The identified baseline characteristics may help to identify patients at risk of non-persistence. The article is accompanied by an editorial by Peter Rasmussen from the Herlev Gentofte University Hospital in Denmark and Elaine Heilek from the Boston University in the USA. The authors highlighted that while it's unclear what specific initiatives and interventions could be beneficial in improving treatment persistence, it's obvious that the current rates of non-persistent with treatment are suboptimal, as stressed by the study by Tura et al. Successful treatment of AF requires not only scrutiny of risk factors and identification of patients requiring stroke prophylaxis, but also subsequent recognition of patients at risk of non-persistence with a potentially life-saving treatment. It is concerning that an inappropriately low persistence with treatment is still an obstacle in the quest to gain full benefit of prophylactic treatment with OACs in AF. Interventional studies aiming at improving treatment persistence should be a distinct priority in future AF research. Smoking is an established potent risk factor. 
However, it's still unclear whether smoking reduction rather than cessation is sufficient to reduce cardiovascular risk. In a clinical research article entitled Smoking Cessation But Not Reduction Reduces Cardiovascular Disease Incidence. Su Min Jong from the Samsung Medical Center in the Republic of Korea and colleagues assess the association of smoking cessation and reduction with risk of cardiovascular disease, or CVD. A total of 900,000 current smokers, aged greater than 40 years, who had undergone two consecutive national health examinations in 2009 and 2011, were included. Participants were classified as quitters, 20.6%, reducers, 1, greater than or equal to 50% reduction, 7.3%, reducers, 2, 20-50% to 50% reduction, 11.6%, sustainers, 45.7%, and increases, greater than or equal to 20% increase, 14.5%. During 5,575,556 person years, or PY of follow-up, 17,748 stroke and 11,271 myocardial infarctions, or MI events, were identified. Quitters had significantly decreased risk of stroke, AHR 0.77, and MI, AHR 0.74, compared to sustainers, after adjustment for demographic factors, comorbidities, and smoking status. The risk of stroke and MI incidence in reducers 1 and reducers 2 was not significantly different from the risk in sustainers. The authors conclude that smoking cessation, but not reduction, was associated with reduced CVD risk. Their study emphasizes the importance of sustained quitting in terms of CVD risk reduction. The manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Charlotte Anderson and Amelie Muller from the Boston University School of Medicine in Boston, Massachusetts, USA. The authors conclude that the low prevalence of women, 5%, must be acknowledged as a limitation of the present study. Although this is likely to reflect the epidemiology of smoking in East Asia, under-reporting of smoking in women may be a concern. In addition, non-cigarette tobacco products have become very common in some populations. In Southeast Asia, smokeless tobacco has been reported to be one of the most common types of tobacco among the youth and e-cigarettes have also gained a lot of popularity among the youth, especially in high-income countries. Whether switching to such products alters cardiovascular disease risk is not well understood yet, and remains another research priority. Chronic venous insufficiency, or CVI, refers to a spectrum of entities which are related to both structural and functional pathologies of the venous system. The pathophysiology of CVI displays a complex interplay of venous valve dysfunction and venous hypertension with subsequent macro and microcirculatory hemodynamic and vascular alterations. Teleangiectasia, reticular venectasia, varicose veins, and CVI ranging from edema to active skin care ulcers represent the most common clinically visible manifestations of chronic venous disease. Evidence regarding the health burden of CVI, its clinical determinants, and impact on outcome is scarce. In a clinical research article entitled 
Chronic venous insufficiency, cardiovascular disease and mortality, a population study. Jürgen Prochaska and colleagues from the University Medical Center of the Johannes Gutenberg University Mainz in Germany looked into this issue further. Systematic phenotyping of CVI according to established CEAP, clinical, etiologic, anatomic, pathophysiologic classification, was performed in more than 12,000 participants, age range 40 to 80 years, of the Gutenberg Health Study from April 2012 to April 2017. Replication of findings was done in an independent cohort study, Myovask NCT 04064450. The prevalence of telangiectasia stroke reticular, varicose veins, and CVI was 36%, 13%, and 41% respectively. Age, female sex, arterial hypertension, obesity, smoking, and clinically overt cardiovascular disease were identified as clinical determinants of CVI. During a mean follow-up of 6.4 years, CVI was a strong predictor of all-cause death, independent of the concomitant clinical profile and medication. Hazard ratio or HR 1.46, P equaling 0.0003. The association of CVI with an increased risk of all-cause death was externally validated in the Myovas cohort, HR 1.51, P equaling 0.009. The authors conclude that CVI is highly prevalent in the population and is associated with the presence of cardiovascular risk factors and disease. Individuals with CVI experience an elevated risk of death, which is independent of age and sex and present cardiovascular risk factors and comorbidities. This manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Naomi Hamburg from the Boston University School of Medicine in the United States. Hamburg concludes that the study by Prochaska et al supplies another reason to examine our patient's legs for signs of chronic venous disease as a window to the heart. Hamburg points out that she will still explain to patients with chronic venous disease that varicose veins are not the same as blocked arteries, but she will also be sure to comprehensively evaluate for the presence of cardiovascular risk factors, encourage exercise and risk factor modification, and await future research to identify the impact venous-targeted therapies on cardiovascular disease. Heart failure, or HF, is an ongoing epidemic and a serious clinical and public health issue. Currently, little is known about prospective associations between insomnia symptoms and HF incidence. In a clinical research article entitled Insomnia Symptoms and Incident Heart Failure, a Population-Based Cohort Study, Asos Mahmoud from the University of Memphis School of Public Health in Memphis, Tennessee, USA, and colleagues investigated the longitudinal associations between time-varying insomnia symptoms, difficulty initiating sleep, difficulty maintaining sleep, early morning awakening, non-restorative sleep, and incident HF. Data were obtained from the Health and Retirement Study in the US for a population representative sample of 12,761 middle-aged and older adults who were free from HF at baseline in 2002. Respondents were followed for 16 years for incident HF. 
They employed marginal structural discrete-time survival analyses to adjust for potential time-varying biological, psychocognitive and behavioural factors and to account for bias due to differential loss to follow-up. At baseline, 38% of the respondents reported experiencing at least one insomnia symptom. During the 16-year follow-up, 1,730 respondents developed incident HF. Respondents experiencing 1, HR 1.22, 2, HR 1.45, 3, HR 1.66, or 4, HR 1.80 insomnia symptoms had a significantly higher hazard of incident HF than asymptomatic respondents, as well as respondents that had trouble initiating sleep, HR 1.17, maintaining sleep, HR 1.14, early morning awakening, HR 1.20, and non-restorative sleep, HR 1.25. The authors conclude that insomnia symptoms, both cumulatively and individually, are associated with incident HF. Public health awareness and screening for insomnia symptoms in at-risk populations should be encouraged to reduce HF incidence. The contribution is accompanied by an editorial by Mathieu Berger and colleagues from the Lausanne University Hospital, CHUV, and the University of Lausanne in Switzerland. The authors conclude that overall the study by Mahmoud et al. provides robust evidence that insomnia complaints are not minor symptoms in a middle-aged older population but may also have severe long-term cardiovascular consequences. Insomnia symptoms are easily recognisable and modifiable, but many individuals with insomnia remain untreated despite the effectiveness of available treatment options. Although the ability of insomnia treatments to prevent HF remains unproven, they advise general practitioners and cardiologists to consider sleep complaints when conducting clinical cardiovascular risk assessments. Where significant issues are identified, patients should be referred to a sleep specialist for investigation of the sleep complaints, to rule out another sleep disorder and, if necessary, manage insomnia disorders with appropriate treatments, such as CBTI. At the very least, this should improve health-related quality of life. Sleep is essential to health. It's time to put sleep back at the heart of our concerns. With the intensification of social production pressure and the refinement of the division of labour, shift work is gradually becoming common among employees in modern society. According to the 6th European Working Condition Survey, nearly 21% of the working population engaged in shift work, which is identified as an irregular working schedule outside the conventional daytime, often classified into daily, night, rotating and other types of shift work. Growing evidence indicates that shift work, particularly night shift work, has an adverse impact on individual health and organ function. In a clinical research article entitled Long-term night shift work is associated with risk of atrial fibrillation and coronary heart disease. Ningjiang Wang and colleagues from the Shanghai Jiao Tong University School of Medicine in China sought to test whether current and past shift work was associated with incident AF and whether this association was modified by genetic vulnerability. Its associations with coronary heart disease, or CHD, stroke and HF 
were measured as a secondary aim. This cohort study included more than 283,000 participants in paid employment or self-employed without AF, and more than 276,000 participants free of CHD, stroke and HF at baseline in the UK Biobank. A weighted genetic risk score for AF was calculated. During a median follow-up of 10.4 years, 5,777 incident AF cases were documented. From day workers, shift but never stroke rarely night shifts, and some night shifts to usually stroke permanent night shifts, there was a significant increasing trend in the risk of incident AF, P for trend 0.013. Usually, or permanent night shifts, were associated with the highest risk, HR 1.16. These associations were not modified by genetic predisposition to AF. Usual stroke permanent current night shifts, greater than or equal to 10 years, and three to eight nights per month of lifetime night shifts were significantly associated with a higher risk of incident CHD, HR 1.22, HR 1.37, and HR 1.35 respectively. These associations in stroke and HF were not significant. The authors conclude that night shift exposures were associated with increased AF risk, regardless of genetic AF risk. Night shift exposure also increased the risk of CHD, but not stroke or HF. Whether decreasing night shift work frequency and duration might represent another avenue to improve heart health during working life and beyond warrants further study. The manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Dominic Linson colleagues from the Maastricht University Medical Centre and Cardiovascular Research Institute Maastricht in the Netherlands. The authors conclude that lifestyle and behavioural interventions have become increasingly recognised as important tools for risk factor modification for primary and secondary CVD prevention. Whether environmental and lifestyle modifications of circadian rhythm and clock-based therapeutic strategies, including chronotherapy, and pharmacological agents that target core clock components and proximal regulators, is likely to alter CVD outcomes, remains unclear. It appears that limiting night shifts to a minimum and allowing recreational recovery periods after each night shift block and coordinating the work schedule with family or social time is the best advice a clinician can provide in this regard. To implement this strategy, discussions with all stakeholders are needed and governmental countermeasures need to be implemented. The issue is also complemented by two discussion forum contributions. In a commentary entitled Air Pollution and Cardiovascular Diseases in Young Adults, Yang Gu Xin from the Beijing Friendship Hospital and Jun Li Lai from the Sichuan University in China comment on the recent publication Associations of the combined effect of air pollution and changes in physical activity with cardiovascular disease in young adults by Xiong Rei Kim from the Seoul National University College of Medicine in South Korea. Kim et al. respond in a separate comment. The editors hope that this issue of the European Heart Journal will find the interest of its listeners.